Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is our Executive Director, Nick Gosling, and a special guest, Aaron Day, who is a lobbyist in Austin, Texas, and a longtime libertarian and Christian thinker. Aaron, as a lobbyist, many people have, have this assumption that a, a lobbyist is, is not a good person. Can you, uh, is that, has that been your experience? Well, I, yeah, I, it's always requires some explanation whenever I say I'm a lobbyist, but I, I never dodge that fact. I never say I work in government relations or uh, occlude it in any way um, because I'm really proud of the profession. I think we, we serve a, an extremely important role. And uh, the one of the ways I, I make people realize that we're less nefarious than, than we sound or you think is that you don't realize that you do have a lobbyist. I mean, if you're employed in an industry or if you have an interest and if government impacts that interest, then out there somewhere you have a lobbyist. You have a professional speaking for you on your behalf and hopefully you're engaging and giving that professional direction. But, but you know, like if you're a florist, there's a florist association and, and like I work for a title insurance association and, and there's someone that, that whose job it is, is to be your voice and redress your grievances with the government uh, because you don't have time to learn the system and learn the process and learn the people and the humans involved. Uh, and so you need to outsource that in your daily life. And, and I'm that outsourcing. That's, that's as simple as that. I'm just the first amendment in action. And, and democracy in action and at the direction of people who come together. For example, trade associations like I work for, it's a real easy job morally for me because I'm representing a consensus view of a large group of people that, that the view doesn't land in my lap. It's not my job to take it to either the, the, uh, the executive branch or the legislative branch until till uh that viewpoint has been well vetted and and it represents a consensus opinion of, of a group of people and that, there's a process to that so i've always enjoyed processes uh and um and really taking a lot of pride in, in what i do and and sometimes you know we're talking public policy and as a professional advocate you you don't always wholeheartedly agree with what you're advocating for example i'm a libertarian and i used to work for a large city that's where I first uh, joined the, you know, began my career as a lobbyist. And, and so here I was this anti-government person working for a government whose job it was to talk to other governments and represent that government. And if I was giving something by counsel that maybe my heart wasn't in, um, I, much like a defense lawyer, they're either representing the, 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 the innocent or they're representing the process. It's either, you know, I'm, I, I'm, allowing an innocent man to have his chance to go free or I'm giving uh, a citizen his rights to due process. And similarly, I would look at my charge as I'm either 
wholeheartedly believing in this uh, concept or I'm representing and communicating the wishes and desires of a city council that was made up of uh, and speaking for their constituencies. So e- either way, my job lands in a, a you know, it's a, a professional a space that I can be proud of. Yeah, I think I think more people uh, should have that perspective about lobbyists because you know, in a, in a way, every single person should be their own lobbyist, and that's kind of infeasible, of course. And so you have special interests, uh, you know, who who need to be represented and ought to and deserve government representation. But you know, we can get into some of your experiences as a lobbyist here in a little bit. If you don't mind, give us uh, a little bit of your personal background how did you get to where you were today where did you where did you learn what you learned where did you go to school well i went to the university of texas at austin and as an undergraduate i really didn't concentrate on anything that i should have um i was always thinking i was the first person in my family tree to go to college so i thought i had to do something practical and so um so i was in the business school and then and then, you know, decided uh, that I had to escape accounting. And so I decided, well, I still want to do something business-like. So I was in economics and no one told me that was just calculus under another name. Um, you know, if I had it all do over again, it would have been history and philosophy and political science and that kind of thing. But but coming out of that, I ended up with a German and economics major. And then that just, uh, you know, but off to law school and and I ended up at UT Law School as well and graduated from law school and um, decided I didn't want to practice law and uh, was interested in art and politics and and spent all my time either in intellectual property or constitutional law uh, in, in the school and didn't take much serious bar courses like I probably should have, would have made that easier. But, but, uh, but I, I started a record label here in Austin for a little while after law school. And uh, after that, um, uh, you basically made a, uh, a conversation with my wife. Uh, Give me two years. Don't make me work for a corporate law firm. Give me two years of trying this entrepreneurial thing. And if it doesn't work, uh, you get the next two years. And, and after two years, we decided, okay, well, let's do something different and let's go to a different town. And uh, she always wanted to be on the East Coast. So we went to Washington. And so I sat for the bar, and while I was waiting for my bar results, I ended up uh, working for the Libertarian Party and getting involved in libertarian activism, and and uh, that that led me to to eventually uh, working for a uh, running a gubernatorial campaign, a libertarian campaign in Iowa. Who's you know, as libertarians, our job was to educate, not necessarily win, but that proved to be a really valuable campaign experience. I, I, I often considered it my kind of graduate school of politics and campaigning. And so uh, after that, uh, came back to Washington and uh, it was time to start our family. And once we started our family, it was time to uh, get back to Texas and start our, our real career. I could no longer sto- throw stones from the from the side and, and, and remain in my ivory tower. It was time to, to you know, mix it up and, and get involved in a real career. And um, so as happenstance worked, uh, uh, I was able to get a position, a government relations position back in Texas with a large uh, city in Texas and a, a longtime friend, a contemporary who I studied with quite often. He basically said, come back uh, and work for me. I'll pour your 13 years of being a capital staffer in your head if you give me two sessions to to learn how to be a lobbyist. And and so that's where I began. And so it was it was a strange beginning for my career because I, even though I was going to school, 
you know, blocks away from the, the state capitol, I never set foot in the capitol. I, I didn't really want to be corrupted, in my view, by all the lures and trappings of, of politics because I wanted to remain philosophically, ideologically pure and in my ivory tower. And, and I knew that maybe my ambition would, would overwhelm that or, or tempt me, as you will. And then uh, as but then whenever it came time to feed my family, I was okay to risk that temptation. And it was time to, to and, and I, my love of politics and process uh, remained. And so here I was coming from a position of being a pure, if not radical libertarian, suddenly representing a city, a government, and against other governments. And uh, it was 360 degree uh, lobbying, uh, uh, dealing with, you know, working for a political animal, uh, representing them against other political animals and with other political animals. And it was a great way to cut my teeth on the industry and practice of profession of lobbying, as well as learning a lot more about government and the role of government and what I agree with and what I don't. Tested some of my orthodoxy. It's it's kind of interesting how much of my orthodoxy has remained uh, in place after all these years of having to be practical, pragmatic, get a paycheck, um, represent views that that uh, coming from a place that I'm, you know, originally probably wouldn't agree with. And it's been it's been an interesting growth process for me. Yeah, I could imagine that th- that would have an effect <laughs> on on you know your orthodoxy as well do you, do you think you're just optimistic that eventually your orthodoxy will gain more traction how why do you think it is that that you've maintained you know a little bit more not you know, i'll call it purist libertarianism but you know your your orthodox beliefs as opposed to kind of dissolving or devolving into you know left or right well you know i've always <laughs> Well, one, it helps being in Texas because I'm never in a position of having to uh, even, you know, working for a Texas city. I was never in a position of having to 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 uh, represent something uh, too absolutely contrary to my beliefs, although there were, you know, um, my mayor mayor wanted checkpoints uh sobriety checkpoints at one point and so i did i have to admit and confess that i did work behind the scenes to try to keep that off my plate um and and so there were every now and then i'd bump up against something that that acute i guess is a way to say a little more against your conscience than yeah than just uh than just ideology versus ideology (laughs) right right but 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 you know uh, in that context i was representing process uh local control um, and, and the way I describe it is much like a, uh, a defense attorney, you're either representing an innocent person or you're representing the system and the right of, of a citizen to a fair trial. And, and so in, in the context of my professional advocacy, I've always been in one of those two roles. And so I've always been able to be a professional and justify that in terms of the way that it's challenged my orthodoxy. Um, you know, I realize there's certain, there are certain places uh, for government uh, to function. And then it becomes a question, okay, well, which version of this uh, uh, or how much of this government is necessary and, and what's the optimal uh, government intervention if it's going to happen. For example, my, my job now, I, I, I defend regulation, and, uh, but I, I'm in an industry where there, there are uh, price 
failures. I mean, the, the price mechanism doesn't work very well um, because of the nature of a unique industry that's sort of quasi-governmental in nature. So, you know, and I was, and that was an easy when I moved over to who I represent now. I was like, I was able to check my my philosophy at the door because I'm in an industry that will always be regulated by its very nature. And so now it's just a matter of picking policies within policies. But to answer your orthodoxy question, um, my being a libertarian actually was very helpful and useful as a lobbyist in terms of left versus right because I was neither. And so that actually helped my, aided my ability to communicate with both the sides of the aisle because I was neither fish nor fowl. I didn't have a dog in their ideological hunt. And so it was kind of a fun place to be in the early part of my, my lobby career. Uh, it became more challenging as uh, the Tea Party phenomenon developed and and libertarianism started to get a toehold uh at least in the texas republican party and then it started to take on a different flavor and characteristic then and and people then started becoming threatened by by libertarian thoughts and and figures and and so that's made it more challenging to to claim you know that i'm a libertarian wear it on my sleeve in terms of navigating that space but but i don't shy away from it because um because it's still the right position. So I haven't had my right or left challenged uh, as a result of my profession. I have had my views about when government intervention is justified and when it's not uh, moderated, because um, I was more in the anarchist camp than, than a pragmatic libertarian camp, really, for most of my intellectual life. So I've never met somebody who was always a libertarian, and my guess is you're not going to be the first person. So could you tell us a little bit about how you became a libertarian? Absolutely. You know, I grew up in a conservative Pentecostal family, uh, working class, and, um, and, you know, during the Reagan years, I was a child of Nancy Reagan and, and uh, in so many ways and kind of a young Federalist Society type person. Um, I, you know, considered Nixon a hero in uh, in late elementary school, early junior high. That that type of uh, think you know, definitely all all republicanism is good, and not to be challenged. And then, as I started to to uh, mature, frankly, a little bit and and read, um, I I the concept of liberty just started to take hold, and I really owe it to John Stuart Mill. Reading on liberty really changed my view of government and and the idea of pluralism and tolerance and liberty as a way to build a better society and the, the best society uh, was really compelling. And, and for me, it was it started with John Stuart Mill. I mean, for some folks, it starts with an Ayn Rand or some very, you know, strong personality like that. But but I, I have to give John Stuart Mill all the credit for my personal liberty. And then and then um, as I I sort of coming from a Pentecostal background where the Bible was more to be quoted and not read and um, lest, you know, reading uh, create questions and, and questions come from, you know, nefarious places. Um, and I'm, you know, mocking that a little bit. And I don't mean to be disrespectful because I, I, I do a love a lot about that tradition and I believe in the fruits of the spirit. And I think there's, there's a place for Christian mysticism for sure. Uh, I, at the time through my adolescence kind of put that on the shelf 
and spend all my time in political thinking, less in theological thinking. But ironically, my heroes and where I spent a lot of my time were was with uh, Emerson and Thoreau, and uh, the idea of, of course, civil disobedience, and and very much modeled after Christ's approach. And then, of course, heroes like Gandhi and and uh, heroes like Martin Luther King, all modeled on Christ's approach to government. Uh, it, it sort of was an interesting um, combination of, of a libertarian development, but also a political activism mixed in there and, and, and it having an unmistakably uh, Christian characteristic to it. Did you have any uh, family members that, you know, kind of pushed back, you know, as you were learning this? Or did they kind of agree with you naturally at all? Yeah, I think there's a, there was a natural fit. I think there's a reason why actually where I grew up in Texas is sort of the hotbed of Christian libertarianism uh, and, and what, what others think is the Tea Party movement. It's really like you know, these liberty conservatives that are, that are Christian conservatives as well. They're all kind of coming out of literally the same county and the section of the county I grew up in. And I don't know that county for a while was sort of the frontier of the frontier. It was suburban, but we still, at, at our socioeconomic level, we're, we're kind of the first or second generation from the farm, you know, and, and the, the culture of Texas has, has long been uh, a culture of individual self-reliance and liberty. And so I think culturally that folded into it. Also, a lot of my libertarianism came from my grandmother, who was very Christian conservative in her her viewpoint. Uh, but before there was a Jerry Falwell saying Christians need to be part of of the the government, there was a long tradition, especially in. Uh, the sort of Pentecostal uh, tradition of distrust of government because we were always on the lookout for the mark of the beast and knowing that government was something that was going to be corrupted one day. So that was of man and you're supposed to be in the world, not of it. So that would, I can't deny that that was a, and I have to recognize that that was a healthy uh, germ of skepticism that that was so to me a long, long time ago from the beginning. And it was so to me in the context of Christianity. That, that Christians will be persecuted by the U.S. government one day, which is quite a different uh, way to grow up and think about the U.S. government. Um, versus, you know, now it's God and country and got to stand up and salute the flag because that's blasphemous if you don't. I'm more uh, likely to come from a tradition that says, well, it's blasphemous to be worshiping a state object and, and trying to replace God in that way. It sounds like you've really integrated your faith and your politics uh, all all through the years and what you've been referring to. When when you talk to Christians who don't really align with libertarianism, do you have a way, do you have any favorite ways of sort of communicating how those intersect and why they're far more compatible than it, than first blush? I have to credit a good friend of mine one time when we were having this conversation who was a Christian, he's actually a Greek Orthodox Christian. And so he was able to, you know, he's surrounded by people who don't agree with him and are non-Christians and, and kind of more liberal intellectual circles. And he's all, and his defense always begins with, do you really think Christ would have been for the death penalty? And the irony of that observation um, is, you know, 
humorous, but also very, very true that there's a certain complexity to Christianity that a lot of people race past. And and for me, uh, I'll either start with that joke uh, or I will talk about how I, in my personal view, we all try to make Christ, you know, our political uh, you know, surrogate, but but he was a libertarian or, or he was more libertarian than he was anything else because he was saying, look, we need to have this this kingdom of God outside of this terrestrial kingdom. There's nothing good that government can do for us. Sure, deal with it. Render unto it what you need to. Obey the rules. Stay out of trouble. But but get you know build everything that's important and satisfy your own needs and 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 bring people over to salvation through voluntaryism. You know, uh, to me. There is, if someone was saying, when I'm arguing and, and I go to church at a church that's very much like this, because I'm now go to a Methodist church that view Christianity in terms of social justice and, you know, healthcare as defined by, you know, cultural, modern social justice as being healthcare being something Jesus would have, you know, state provided healthcare being something Jesus would have done. Uh, I'd say, well, no, because first and foremost, Jesus was nonviolent. And so I like to kind of boil it down, you know, start at the violence point, which it's quick and tempting for us libertarians to whip that out there. And, and, and we do it in such an obscure way. I don't think it always connects, but I think that's why that nonviolence message in terms of the state and the non-aggression principle actually makes more sense when you're using Jesus as your analogy, because obviously Jesus wouldn't put a gun to someone's head to give to the poor. Uh, he was he was compelling people to give to the poor on their own volition and to be saved by their own acceptance and their own volition. With and so, I've often argued that to take my taxes robs me of the spiritual opportunity to take those resources and voluntarily give them you're you're taking that's you're you're robbing me of a moral of an opportunity for a moral act similarly if you were to you know outlaw a sin then you're robbing me of the choice to uh avoid that sin um and and so uh you know we we weren't created robots we were given free will and we weren't given free will just to hand over to some third party to 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 take aaron we also have nick on here to talk a little bit with us um about experiences in the field as it were and maybe you could say on the ground or on the front lines uh in electoral politics and i you know i like what you said earlier about it's not necessarily about winning winning the election but educating people who are voting and you know maybe over the long haul we can get we can we can change you know elections you know nick maybe you can also share a little bit of your experiences uh in in electoral politics as well yeah you know i have been in formal politicking for a number of years myself and i'm not nearly as involved anymore as i used to be but you know back uh, a number of years ago i i managed my first campaign when i was 19 uh, didn't win, but it was, it was a good, it was a good experience. Uh, and, and we made some, some waves and, you know, then in, in my twenties, I, uh, had been a political consultant and I had been in Republican party leadership in Nevada. Um, uh, the county, the, the, uh, the board of directors, the, the executive board of the county party out here in, uh, in Clark County. Uh, Nevada, and then also on the state central committee, and I'd I'd traveled across the country doing political operations, and I've run 
ballot initiatives and I've run other campaigns and done all these sorts of things. And so, I mean, yeah, I've, I've certainly been on the ground and, you know, I've, Maybe I've had a little bit more of a of a negative experience in some ways than than uh, than Aaron has because I mean I at least out in this in this part of the country I mean I've seen a lot of uh, dirty tricks and um, you know a lot of uh, the the darker side of of politicking but at the same time it can also be really fun uh, if you if you don't take it too seriously and you realize that you know God's in control and and Jesus is really king and. Uh, you can actually have a lot of fun fighting the bad guys, um, but y- you know it, it. It is it is interesting. I mean, I like I said, I've not I'm not nearly as involved anymore as I as I used to be many many years ago when I was doing this professionally and and semi professionally. I'm still sort of marginally involved today, and I have a lot of friends who are still very deeply involved and in party leadership from a libertarian perspective. Some of them are are anarcho capitalists, and they're in party leadership and they're dealing with uh, legislatures and some of them some of them are legislators uh, and they're lobbying in Washington and so it's it, there's really kind of a, a wide divergence that has developed over these last I'm going to say eight to ten years since since the modern libertarian movement really started with Ron Paul's 2008 presidential campaign we've we've seen a lot of different branches of libertarianism and how it relates to formal politicking. You know, there's some people that just won't touch formal politics at all. There's some people that are very deeply involved in formal politics. Some people have gone the way of, of uh, being involved in think tanks. Um, and, and, I mean, we've seen some great organizations come up like Young Americans for Liberty, Students for Liberty, which are training uh, the, sort of the next generation of, of liberty activists to be, uh, to be grassroots advocates advocates to do field work, to learn how to, how to do phone banks and, and field canvassing on doors and be fundraisers and marketers and how to talk to the press. You know, these are all really great things. As far as how you actually apply it, though, um, you know, it, it, it comes down to what the individual is, is comfortable with. And there's, uh, you know, there, there's certain things that uh, I probably wouldn't do now that I did do five, six years ago. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't be involved uh, at at all. If you're even if you're an anarcho capitalist, um, it really comes down to to the individual and and what they're comfortable with and how your ethics apply to it. Uh, and, and so there's no canned answer. There's no easy questions. But it's it's definitely good to at least know the system, know how it works, and consider how you might be able to to make an impact in your local community at least. Well, you know, my my response to that is, Nick, as you were describing that, I was, it sounded so familiar in the sense that, you know, as libertarians, we've been trying to communicate this very simple message, and we've had multiple generations beat their heads against this wall, and, um, and, and I, when I joined the Libertarian Party and got the opportunity to work on staff, part of my, I almost joined as like a, a as if I was a journalist wanting to study this. So, you know, what went wrong? Why isn't libertarianism working libertarianism working institutionally? And I learned a lot about the history. And, and what's interesting, Nick, what you just described is like, you know, a group of us come in under some wave, you know, Ron Paul, 
is a good example. And we start learning the mechanics. We learn how, okay, oh, this is how a campaign works. Oh, there's some professional strategies I need to learn. I need to grow in this enough that you can turn around and be a consultant and teach it to others. And we got to learn this campaigning thing if we're ever going to get our message out. Um, you know, you mentioned the think tanks, you know, after the 1980 libertarian campaign that actually had a big splash nationally, but then failed. Uh, and, and then there was, you know, cultural divisions within libertarianism. Ed Crane, I think it was him that said, you know, this is never going to work. Politics is never going to work. Let's take our movement over here to the and start this uh, think tank. And that's the, you know, genesis of the Cato Institute. And this idea of like, well, you know, this route's not going to go. Let's try this route. And and I would submit that a route that a not enough of us have traveled down is be becoming professional lobbyists. The libertarian movement needs a lobby and it needs a real lobby. I mean, we, we've learned activism. We've learned how to win a few offices here and there. Uh, we've learned how to educate. We've learned how to think and tank. But, but we haven't learned how a bill becomes a law. And we have to get that knowledge and we have to start implementing it. And I've had an opportunity here since I've been able to do this professionally and actually feed my family uh, on the job to learn this. Um, I've had the opportunity to mentor, you know, real activists with more personal flexibility than I have to be involved with the issues uh, that I care about, but just can't be involved with because of my professional limitations. But I freely share that knowledge and that we got some good lobbyist grooming here in Texas, and I'm not taking full credit for it, but I'm glad to have taken a role in saying, hey, guys, come off the sidewalk, you know, put down the markers and the signs come here, there's a process and we can work this process to our advantage and we can make actual changes in the law that will make people more free. And uh, so I would really challenge the greater libertarian community out there and activists to not look at it as a dirty business. And just like this conversation began, wait a minute, lobbying's bad. Lobbyists are bad. Therefore, we don't want to get dirty. And who, you know, how the idea of doing that is sounds repulsive to the libertarian when I say, no, you're looking at it all wrong. That's the First Amendment in action. And in order to use an institution, you have to know the rules of the institution. In order to get people to vote the way you want to vote, you have to use strategies the same way you would if you were on the sidewalk trying to get someone to sign your petition to get Ron Paul on the ballot in your state. It's just another venue. But by the way, it's the venue that actually ends up writing the laws we live under. You know, against the stigma that people have about being a lobbyist, it sounds like there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it is that you do. Um, you can explain in detail or in as much detail as you want what you do in your industry if you'd like to. But just as a general lobbyist, what what does a, a typical week look like for someone who's officially a lobbyist? And you're, you're more at the, the state level, correct? Right. Do you think that might, you do seem like the most optimistic libertarian working in politics that I've talked to. Um, so is that, is that maybe because you're at the state level and, and most libertarians think national level when they think about politics? Well, uh, yes, to a large degree. And my, and, and I, 
I've lobbied uh, at the national level quite a bit as well, and I still that's part of my official professional role. But but I actually avoid avoid going to Washington if I can help it because I get more depressed every time because it's more dysfunctional and it's really a waste of my time. Uh, I can do more for my client uh, in the state um, than than I can try to do in Washington, and you know, and that's the nature of who I'm representing too. But also from a liberty perspective, I would say the same as true. Uh, Washington is somewhat of a lost cause in terms of the legislature because you have a Congress that doesn't want its job. No congressman wants to do what a congressman is supposed to do, and that's make decisions and be accountable for those decisions. And so, whereas in the state level, they can't escape that accountability and they can't escape those those decisions because in a state like Texas, we only meet every other year, but there's going to be 6,000 bills and a good a good two, two to three thousand, around the two thousand of those bills are going to land on your desk as a member of the legislature, and you will have to vote up or down. You will have to make a decision that's inescapable. So policy actually does get made at the state level, and and that's why it should be exciting for for an activist and liberty minded to engage. As someone in Texas, uh, and as a libertarian in Texas, I have a lot of reason for my optimism because Texas happens to be the one state in the union that has filed that has had within it filed the most radical marijuana legalization bill every file uh, ever filed that I'm aware of. Um, it, we actually had a, uh, Republican, a Christian Republican. In fact, this 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 individual was made fun of on the Daily Show for, uh, of a clip of him praying outside of the Texas Capitol, uh, and then and he's the one who filed a bill that would have removed the word marijuana completely from the statutes, and uh, so it would be regulated like we regulate tomato plants or jalapenos. Um, it's as if that public policy mistake never happened, like other plants. Like other plants, exactly. We called it the tomato plant bill, you know, because um, that's uh, what you really called it. Yeah, exactly. It'd be that's regular. awesome. You know, you can't put poison on it. You can't say it's an apple and sell it as a tomato. But besides that, there you go. You know, um, no more regulation on it. And 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 this was perhaps the most Christ-centered. I guess is a fair way to say it. It is absolutely a fair way to uh, describe David Simpson in Texas as a Christ-centered individual and i would say i dare say the most christ-centered individual in the texas legislature filed that bill and he filed it and he's written articles on it that you know god did not make a plant so that man would turn around and, and make it illegal and uh he he got that bill out of committee and and had the the calendar's chair, which is the chair that decides uh, if it goes on to the next level, uh, voted for that bill because he happens to sit on that committee and a bipartisan group voted it out of committee, that bill. And and that, you know, there's nothing being discussed, anything close to that being discussed anywhere else in the nation. So, and that was a result of, of lobbying in a sense, uh, you know, a, a representative had the idea, he got some professional input and he got some professional encouragement and he decided, you know what, this is important. This is time to make this, uh, make this uh, conversation, start this conversation. And so you, we wouldn't have had that conversation framed that way. And we wouldn't have people scratching their heads going, what? 
a Christian conservative from East Texas is filing a bill making marijuana equivalent to tomatoes. You can grow it in your backyard or sell it on the side of the road. What's going on here? And that creates a dissonance that people have to reconcile. It's a radical uh, activism tool. And it's as simple as having a, an elected official use his capacity to file a bill and use the official process. I mean, what's the point of having these governments, the governmental institutions that write these laws and never engaging them? You know, sometimes I wonder if what people really need to see libertarianism in action is people living, people like David Simpson, who we've had as a guest at one of our conferences. Um, and, you know, I've met him for a few minutes and he just seems like a stand up guy that we just need to see more people like him living out their values in a way that you know, isn't just about the talk, isn't just about principles, you know, for, you know, for me, people ask me why I'm a libertarian and we talk, it's really like theology talk and, you know, philosophy talk. And it's nothing, there's, there's nothing I've personally done to, to stand up for my beliefs by proposing, you know, legalization of marijuana in the state legislature or something like that. But just to see, you know, a Christ, a Christ-centered man, uh, you know, doing politics in a way that, that lives out his beliefs uh, and and carries them out. What experiences have you had with other politicians, um, other than David Simpson, if you've had any? And what are those? What are those like? I mean, does does my comment ring true that like being with people and and seeing people in action do do a lot for for the cause? Absolutely. I mean, when I uh, when I first, like I said before, when I when I first entered the lobby, you know, my being a libertarian was a curiosity and kind of a conversation point because I could say, hey, you know, and I'm, I have this weird little philosophy. You want to hear about what I think about things? And don't worry, it's no threat because there's no way we're going to be in a position to challenge the way you want to run things. Um, but but I always use that as an opportunity to evangelize uh, for for liberty. I mean, I get to. In my job, I get to sit down with Democrats and sit down with Republicans. My job is to develop relationships and working relationships with both Democrats and Republicans and conservative ones and moderate ones and, and everybody in between. And my job is to know all of them and be able to communicate professionally with all of them. And instead of talking about sports, I like to talk about philosophy because that's the way I am. And then that's the way I'm wired. And that's what I find interesting. And so, so I talk about liberty and I try to meet them on their level. You know, naturally, if I'm... If I'm with a uh, um, Democrat, I might be emphasizing civil liberties. But you know what? I I have uh, uh, I like to challenge them and myself by talking about how. Oh, by the way, you know, died in the wool Democrat. I happen to think that minimum wage is one of the most racist policies ever devised. Um, how's that for a thought? Want to have that conversation? And and since I'm not there to challenge them, and and I'm never going to get someone to file that bill, uh, we can sit and have an intellectual conversation. And I've had people. I've actually, you know, I'm not saying I persuaded them, but I've at least planted some seeds and, and, or, you know, African-American Democrat from the inner city, uh, who would think that you would be pro gun control. Did you know the history of gun control? Did you know that most of that history has been about going after African-Americans with guns and disenfranchising African-Americans? Are you aware of that history? No, I'm not. Well, here's an article. And, and so I use my access uh, as I can, not not in a provocative way that would would uh, you know do anything bad for my client or put me in a bad personal position. You know, my job is to professionally advocate for who I'm needing to professionally advocate for. But by virtue of 
sharing space with a person when it's time to talk something besides that shop and it's time to just talk philosophy and something besides the weather and sports i like to talk about liberty and and uh in non-threatening ways but in ways that might be challenging for them individually what would you recommend to people who might be listening and are interested in getting into uh, politics either on a state or local or or even national level are there places you know, for them to start, you know, organizations, should they do kind of the college route for, for this kind of work? Where do you, where do you recommend? It seems like a lot of lawyers are in your field um, and that's a lot of school. Yeah, actually, you know what? It's 50, 50 uh, in terms of the professional lobby. Uh, there's, and that might be generous. Uh, the majority, probably the majority of lobbyists are non-lawyers. Um, uh, actually here in Texas and, and, and the majority of the legislature are now non-lawyers. And so, uh, most people fall into the lobby. You end up, you know, some industry gets in trouble and, 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 and the government starts messing with them and then they, they're in house and that corporation or whatever and their job is, you know, to go suddenly show up at the legislature and start talking to people. And then they, they end up developing a skill set and, and ending up becoming a professional lobbyist or, uh, a lot of folks come from the staffer route where you work for a legislator and, and, and learn the ropes that way and get involved that way. I would encourage that if, if my, one of my boys was interested in, in politics, I would recommend that they, they, they work for someone in office and, and see it and learn it that way. I'd have a, uh, like I, I said about my my earlier days, I avoided that because I wanted to avoid some of the trappings. I would encourage them to avoid some of the trappings along with that decision. But but that's definitely the way to learn it by doing it. But you know what? It's real. It's actually really easy uh, in this to get involved in a sense as long as someone can support your effort to get involved, i.e., a nonprofit or an activism group. You know, if you're spending money trying to get votes. I would challenge any local activism group or statewide activism group to spend uh, equal, if not more money, training and developing boots on the ground to engage in the, in the legislative process, because that is where the rubber meets the road. And so I think that's one way to do it. Um, say, you know, um, hey, instead of you know, organizing this rally, how about we take this money and, and, and uh, why don't you support me going over here and spending these days or at the Capitol getting to know these people and sitting in these committee hearings and seeing how this process works and, and, and show up with an ask. You show up with the legislature with an ask and then you'll start learning. You can't help but to. And like, you know, any professional or any expert is simply someone who has uh, made all the mistakes in a given field. Aaron, in the last, you know, however long you've been in this business, a uh, couple of decades or, or whatever it may be, how has the landscape uh, changed from like when you first started to the way things are now? Uh, I mean, how, what kind of perception do you think that uh, libertarian and libertarian politics are getting? I mean, obviously you talked about some examples that would tend in the positive direction, but I mean, are we... Are we making headway? Uh, are there some things that seem to have gone backwards, or is it all kind of moving forwards? Just what's your take on the whole landscape between when you started versus right now? Well, I have to speak from the Texas perspective because that's that's been a unique 
thing here and that's just been my world but in texas like i said i before as a libertarian i was non-threatening and i could openly say i was libertarian now i have to be careful how that rolls rolls out i don't shy away from it but i do have to be careful and put it in context because a lot of people have been threatened by libertarians uh but that uh that have had some success in primaries and and that type of thing it's part of what began the Tea Party movement in Texas and has really evolved into a lot of the flavors of the old religious right movement. And, and so I think, uh, and, and I'm not disparaging those personalities. They, they definitely have a lot more constitution in them than previous versions of the religious right. But at the end of the day, that's where the base is. The people who are electing in, in Texas we have an interesting phenomenon where I think that uh, the people who are running more in the Tea Party, uh, right, hard right or perceived as hard right vein, they're actually more libertarian as individuals than the people who are voting for them. So that creates a challenge to where uh, maybe in their heart of hearts, they're more libertarian, but they're having to speak to the social issues and, and other kind of pop buttons that, that the base wants to talk about and spend time on. Uh, but, but the net positive of that is that they are more open to liberty ideas and the ideas of, uh, you know, especially in terms of civil justice and, and individual liberty. And so uh, even within, although I lament from a national perspective and even a state state perspective, the co-option of the Tea Party movement, which, if we recall, began with Ron Paul and and Ron Paulers uh, uh, having a you know, staging a Tea Party act and uh, and reaction against the bailout, and that became the tax enough already. And it was a it was a reaction against a corporate bailout. It was a very libertarian movement in its genesis, and then became a mad mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. Uh, movement, which then became a Christian conservative right-wing movement. and uh, But there's still vestigals of those libertarian notions, and some of the people who were part of that that actually ended up in office still have strong libertarian strains in them, and that's a positive. The, the negative that we're witnessing here in Texas, and I think it's bad for liberty, is that we are starting to import the uh, culture of Washington and the dynamics of of Washington and Texas, we've had a long tradition of having minority parties be chairs of committees in the legislature, for example. And everything wasn't decided upon party lines in the legislature. We're starting to see that galvanization take place here and people appeal to national conversations instead of keeping it to the local conversations. And so that's a real perversion and corruption of, of, of a movement that's starting to mature and get in power in Texas and, and elsewhere. And um, I lament that because, you know, I may not agree with a lot of the um, minority party here in Texas, Democrats, for example, philosophically and economically, pluralism is important. And we've built these institutions to have checks and balances, and we need to maintain those checks and balances. And it's important for people to communicate with each other across the aisle and not divide up in, 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 in tribal camps. Because uh, the, the, as we're seeing now in these national conversations, the libertarian, if you're, if you're reading comments on things, you're just pulling your hair out as both camps are sounding like absolute you know, fascist or Marxist, pick your poison, uh, and 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 they're 
at both extremes and and they're not talking to each other liberty wins when people start talking to each other because that's what are that's why the the founding fathers developed the institutions that look like they look is because they didn't agree and the only thing they could agree on was freedom and liberty we kind of need to get back to that and that's the divergence i i'm concerned about that's the change i'm seeing one of the things that I don't really know a whole lot about myself, and and I imagine many of our listeners may not have have the you know the knowledge of how this process works, but when you have a politician, somebody who runs for office, and they make promises, and I I always give every politician a little bit of slack because nobody is ever going to get whatever they promised. I mean, the idea of giving some giving their constituents or or potential voters a promise is part of the package deal of I'm going to try to get th- this is who I am and this is what I, this is the direction I'm going to head and and so forth. So I, I give people a little bit of slack on not keeping every promise. But what you know, do politicians go, let's say they're they're elected and then now are are they in office and they have this like checklist of, you know, the high priority items uh, that they promised and then there's things at the bottom of the list and or do they just kind of like throw that away when they get into office. I mean, how, how does that process work? Um, because, you know, it, does, it sometimes just seems like they just want to get elected. And then once they're in office, they do, you know, they appease their, their base uh, enough, enough to be reelected. Um, and that seems to be the, the perception. And I realize that's a very brief caricature to some extent. I know not everybody's like that, but what, what has been your experience on the ground observing that? Because that's kind of the, that's my imagination of what happens. I think the best of them are like that, I, I, and there's no escaping that. I mean, there there's something. You mean best is in the worst? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, even even the most uh, ego checked, civic minded, uh, constituency minded politician still wants to get reelected because there's always the 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 big lie of politics is that. Well, I have to make this compromise because at least I'm better than the guy who would come in here uh, and replace me because he would make worse decisions than me. So I have to compromise on these because I'm I'm better than that that next guy. And there there always comes to a point in which a politician is going to have that conversation with themselves and and they're going to decide that that's the case. Right. Um, I can't stand by my principles on this because when I lose, think of all the bad decisions. Uh, that are going to be made and all the good ones I had. And isn't it worth sacrificing this one opportunity for the sake of all those other opportunities? That's a natural tension. Tension, It's an inescapable tension. So I'm kind of like past it. I don't get upset by that anymore. And and I sort of blame uh, the, the constituents. Don't make someone make a promise they can't keep. Quit buying the fact that they're going to do something, solve a problem that's not solvable or that you've never seen any attempt to be solved. And and here's the dirty little secret to elected officials and their issues. They like issues that either are not real or can't be solved. Because if they were to solve a real problem, then there's consequences to that, right? Because someone's going to be angry because they actually did something. Uh, if they solve a... Um, if they're continually, you know, going down in flames, but fighting the good fight on something that'll never be addressed, then that'll be that's also success for them. I mean, will Republicans ever outlaw abortion? Are you kidding? Why would they put themselves out of business? 
would would Democrats, you know, maybe they might outlaw guns. I give them a little bit more credit, but 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 you it, but Congress, the politician would rather talk about steroids and baseball. They would rather talk about point zero 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 one percent of the population maybe going into a bathroom in a way that that makes someone uncomfortable. Um, again, uh, a fake issue. This concept of sanctuary cities, it's it's the you know man bear pig there's no such thing as a sanctuary city and you get it on both sides you have the republicans saying we need to stop these sanctuary cities and you have democrat mayors saying we're going to have a sanctuary city meanwhile there's no such thing they all both sides will pretend the the man bear pig is a real animal and one wants to protect them as an endangered species and the other one's trying to eradicate it um, when the reality is it doesn't exist um, but the but they like that fake game because uh, there's no consequences. There's no consequences to winning. There's no consequences to losing. Uh, and and that is, that's uh, where the elected official wants to be because that ensures that elected official is going to return. And so that's my high level cynical view. When you get down to particular individuals though, it starts to melt away. It's kind of like, you know, everybody hates Congress, loves their congressman. Individually, when you get at a human level, these are all good people and they all sleep at night and they all are kind of, they're believing the lie. They're telling themselves that, that, you know, they have to do these things because they're better than the next guy. Cause they really do want to be good people. And they really do. Most of them believe in, in what they, uh, that they're fighting a good fight or, or, or in a good process. So, and ultimately the, the way I would describe that as instead of, instead of thinking these are bad guys, um, and think of it in terms of everybody has God within them and they're all trying to do the right thing. They're in a system that's kind of bringing out the worst and putting them in, in a, uh, setting them up for failure. And so I lay the blame not at the lying politician uh, making campaign promises that he or she's never going to keep, but actually at the feet of the people who are demanding uh, responses and actions that they're never going to get or may not even exist in the first place. That makes sense. Yeah. I know that one, one of the biggest, I want to get your opinion on this. Um, one of the big ideas uh, in fixing the problem of politics, people that often, you know, propose even politicians is term limits. And while the idea sounds appealing, there's something about it initially to me that seems like that's just kind of a quick and easy solution. It's like, well, we just don't like the same people in there all the time. And, you know, people don't like politicians, so we just want to have a every four to ten year, you know, turnover. So where there's somebody new basically every decade or so. Um, what what are your thoughts on term limits? And does any of your experiences, can they enlighten us a little bit? I have gone back and forth on term limits. I mean, my whole life from, from when I was far removed from the process and as I've lived through the process and, and I continue to somewhat go back and forth, I would say where I land today is I believe in the concept of term limits. I think they work more often than they don't work. I do think they, they need to be for long terms because turnover is good and healthy too rapid of turnover is unproductive because you come in people you come in, people come in with not appreciating or understanding the system 
And, and there is a learning curve as an elected official. They have to learn the process. And most of that learning is good learning. It's not becoming corrupted and changing. And, and although there is some of that, uh, I, but I do think that there's a, there's a healthy amount of learning that every elected official needs to get under their belt and experience under their belt before they can actually start doing some good governing. And then after a period of good governing, they, they need to move on. So I think term limits definitely are a good component, but, but they need to be set at the right uh, limitation. So you're saying basically longer terms, but shorter numbers of terms might be a good, a good compromise there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Some, some hybrid, some approach accounting for those things. And the reason why I've gone back and forth, it's the same reason why I go back and forth on certain tax mechanisms is there's no such thing as a good tax, right? It's just how can we find one that causes the least amount of harm? Well, there's no perfect institutional system uh, to make all these decisions we make that's called public policy. It's just what can we do to try to get the best one? And they're all going to have their failings. I mean, electoral college, you know, we could talk about that all day long, pluses and minuses. And, and, and so there needs to be like, there needs to be a healthy appreciation from the constituent of my politician can't deliver on this promise. So I'm not going to make him answer it. I'm not going to decide up or down on everything this person says based on their view of abortion and fitting them into a particular box to use that example or any political litmus test like that. The, the reason why as a citizen, we need to set those aside and, and so we can have a more complex dialogue with our elected officials and allow them to come out and communicate their more complex thinking on certain matters. Uh, I think that we need to view our institutions that way. Uh, we maybe reform is good here and we need to tweak this and tweak that, but it's never going to be perfect. It's still humans and still subject and institutions are still going to become gained one way or another. And so it, there needs to be a healthy appreciation of there's no platonic ideal of a legislature and rules of how we build these institutions uh, to download and make perfect. We just have to kind of build and tweak and watch. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Aaron. You've you've given us some information that you know I didn't know, and it, it's given a kind of a firsthand account of wh what it's like. Uh, somebody with some hands-on experience in government. It's it's all too easy for us to get jaded by everything political, and it sounds like you've experienced some some good in the work that you've done. And so I'm really glad that you're able to come on and share some of that with us. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And I enjoy your podcast. Y'all have some great guests and great subjects. And I appreciate you doing what you're doing. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Well, that's another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can send us an email at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Podcast.